Well, good morning. Oh, it's uh, it's actually good to be back. Um, some of you know my story. I know that I grew up here, and um, just in the journey of life, that is faith and, and life and discipleship. Some of what we'll be talking about today. Some of what I've learned is um, when they talk about church in the New Testament, and they use that word ecclesia uh, from the Greek that we translate into our English as church. Ecclesia, when translated, and we hear this word church. Is not, it doesn't mean you know, a series of pews or a big building or a steeple and a cross up front and stuff like that. Um, church simply means, when translated to the English, the people of God. And so we meet in buildings where we are the church. And with that, whenever I'm here among you, and I love just talking with Kevin as we have breakfast together and just chat and meeting with a number of you, it feels like people of God stuff to me. And so I really appreciate um, being here this morning. And I know uh, you've been in Matthew for quite some time, and so Kevin invited me. He's gone with his uh, college buddies this weekend, and he invited me to come and give the final address for this book of Matthew. And so that's where we come today, to the final word in the gospel, where the risen Jesus, standing on the side of a hill, addresses his followers for the final time in person. And I think the scripture will come up on the screen. It's, uh, you can look in your Bibles at Matthew 28, 16 through 20 as well, and uh, I will read that for you, and then we'll dive in. Then the eleven disciples, the twelfth Judas had now died, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples." of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, or some translations will say, lo, possibly even behold, surely or lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. For those of you that maybe grew up in church, and I know not everybody has, and, and there's benefits and drawbacks to that, um, but for those that did, this is probably one of the more well-known passages of Scripture. Many of us in Christian communities call it, in today's day and age, the Great Commission. For this is what Jesus says in his final words to his followers, this Great Commission to go out now and make disciples, to partner with God in the spreading of the good news of the kingdom and to encourage people to follow him, to become disciples. As I've had a chance to be in a number of ministry contexts, churches and parachurch ministries, um, Bethel University, where I now teach, as well as the seminary when I walked through the program there, this series of verses provided a foundation or a basis for much of what that church or ministry would have been about. There, in seminary, there's entire courses and even tracks devoted towards evangelism and discipleship. It's the foundation of the church, and it's Jesus' final words which tells me that there's something in this that would be of great importance for our ecclesia, for the people of God. And it sounds easy enough, go and make disciples, just go do it. It's not that hard, he made it very plain, right? Just make disciples of Jesus. But when I thought about that this past uh, couple weeks, actually, in preparation for this sermon, as I began to dig a little bit deeper beneath the surface, this idea of discipleship didn't seem so simple anymore. 
especially as I started thinking about, hmm, the way in which all the different uh, traditions throughout many generations have conceived of this idea of discipleship. As I thought about that, things became even perhaps problematic for me and even what to say this morning, because many different streams of Christianity have many different interpretations or ideas of discipleship. So when that word disciple is said, when actually played out among many different traditions or, or um, paths of Christianity, it ends up coming out very different. This became apparent to me as I had an opportunity to do my Ph.D. research in the western suburbs of Minneapolis among 12 different churches of very different kinds of traditions, all of them saying we are committed to the Great Commission, we're going to make disciples, and yet when you see how it plays out in their church context, the emphasis or the way in which discipleship is done was quite different. So, for example, within the Catholic stream of Christianity, if you were to be a disciple, some of the expectations of you would be that you would certainly attend Mass each week, and you would also, for in, in that context, take the Eucharist or communion. Uh, you would likely confess your sins at least once a month to the presiding priest. You would uh, probably, from time to time, pray the rosary as it was uh, you know, important and relevant. Uh, and in society at large, you would participate in acts of justice. Um, you would abstain from birth control. You'd do some of these different kinds of behaviors. That would be a disciple in that stream. And if you go down the street and you go to a Pentecostal or charismatic church, maybe, and the brothers and sisters there, the stream of discipleship plays out differently. A commitment to the word, but also some things like speaking in tongues and words of prophecy would be important. Financial stewardship in order to receive the blessings of God would be part of that stream of discipleship. And then, of course, in the context in which I'm most familiar, a place like here at Wyzetta and Bethel where I teach or Crown College, Christian Missionary Alliance, Baptist, whatever it is, um, some people would say it's a conservative evangelical stream. Discipleship would likely include Bible study, would be very important, learning the truth and applying it. Uh, definitely having a daily quiet time. And of course, um, the quiet times are most holy if we get up in the morning with Jesus, right? And we're by a pool of water somewhere opening up the text. Um, Regular times of prayer. Uh, my son, Caleb, is uh, here. He's shaking his head. He lost his iPod last month. Had we known that you could come at 6 a.m. to pray, um, that would have been a great motivator, right, to come and get the iPod. So, but we found it, thankfully. It was, uh, it was good. But regular times of prayer, it was like the Acts method of prayer or cats or something. I can never remember the right order if I'm supposed to adore or confess first or how that works. Church attendance was part of it for me. And I could never sort out if I just went to Sunday school but not to service if that counted, or vice versa. So that was part of that. Small groups accountability. Some of these things were the manifestations of discipleship in, within this stream with which I'm most familiar. Within uh, what some people would call liberal streams of Christianity, the discipleship, again, would look different. And maybe in Sunday school classes, instead of studying the Word, though it might include that, some Sunday school classes may break open Les Miserables, for example, the works of Victor Hugo, and study that for the symbolism and the images that are embedded in that story about the gospel message and pull that out for the faith journey. There might be acts of charity or um, worrying about equality in our culture, some of these sorts of things. And I have many friends from that context. And for those of you that have traveled and you've headed out into the broader world, you know how this goes. You go to Africa and Asia and Christianity sounds and looks and smells 
different. We lived in the UK for a period of time, and, and Celtic Christianity was something that was fascinating to us. And I had no idea how much somebody even like C.S. Lewis was affected in his theology by that. And, and just the stream of Christianity there sounded different. So I don't know about you, but this is where it gets back to the, the potentially problematic piece, is that this is the Great Commission of Jesus. These are his final words. Go and make disciples of all nations. This is what we're called as the Ecclesia to do. And so it seems to me if these are his final words, we had better get this right. We better do this the right way, right? And yet, logically speaking, it doesn't seem tenable necessarily to have all these different streams of Christianity, each one of which saying we are making disciples here. And yet the manifestation of it and the emphasis in each stream is so very different one to the next. So now this Great Commission that sounded so simple at the beginning has suddenly become for me a little bit problematic. What do we say about all these different forms and methods and philosophies of being a disciple? kind of want to just quit right now, actually, because I don't know that I can answer that quite. I'm sure I can't answer that question fully. I know I'm not qualified to judge where and when and how and why Jesus interacts with his creation that he brought into being. I know I'm not. And yet in that, there's something in me that wants to at least dig a little bit deeper beneath the surface to try to, to try to get it underneath some of this, to try to understand some things, to maybe, to maybe bring some light into this. Because as I've said, this is our life, right? We, we claim to be disciples. We claim that these words of Jesus on a hillside 2,000 years ago matter to us. So what do they mean? What do they entail? Are there right and wrong ways to approach it? Or could we cut through all of it and somehow bring an understanding to this that may help tie it all together? That's what I want to try to do this morning in our remaining time. I don't know if what I'm about to say will help do that. I really don't. <laughs> what I'm going to present for your thinking this morning is research of mine that I went into the last several weeks and trying to unpack this question uh, myself. And in doing that unpacking of that question, my starting point was actually another question. And this is where I often start uh, when I'm trying to dig into something like this. The question that I ask myself in these couple of weeks, my wife knows this. I <laughs> talked about this a lot the last few weeks. And anybody who walked in our door, you know, it didn't matter if they were a salesperson or not. They were going to get the same stuff. I know what I think of when I hear the word disciple and just sort of dress that all out for you. But I wonder how those people back in Jesus's day would have heard it. I wonder how those 500 or so some odd people on the side of the hill would have heard it when Jesus said, go and make disciples and lo, I'm with you always in this whole great commission. How did they hear it? What would it be like for us if we were not Western suburbanites of Minneapolis, but instead first century Jews sitting on a hillside listening to these words of Jesus? What would they have meant? And if we can figure that out, will that help us at all today? And our understanding. Now, generally speaking, the reason why I ask that question is it's sort of, I guess, in some circles would be considered basic exegesis. They're just getting into the text and trying to figure out what's there. Um, academics are just a bunch of knuckleheads. I'm among them <laughs> on this. But what academics will say about this process is they will say what you're doing is you're trying to get into the Zitzenleben of the text, which is this German phrase for meaning setting of life. 
Okay, why it has to be in German? Well, that's the knucklehead part, right? It sounds more official somehow if you arrange the Arabic characters of our alphabet into a different language. Somehow it has more authority if I say Zitzenleben instead of setting of life. I don't know. I don't get it. But yeah, I'm, I'm one of them. Um, hopefully not too much. And, uh, and so in that, and, and what's exciting about it is anybody can do it. You don't have to have a bunch of fancy letters after your name. I uh, teach students uh, for years just basic exegesis, and I love it when 20 and 21-year-olds come out of class and say, man, A, the Bible is really exciting, B, it's really exciting, C, it's really exciting, and D, I think I can do it. And it's really exciting to just give them those tools that you can get behind the scenes and the visits and live and the study in life. How did they hear these words? And if we can figure that out, maybe it'll help us cut through all of this clutter of all these different discipleship streams. Okay, so that was my first thought. The second question was much more of a practical one. And it just was, we have limited time this morning. So what part of this commission should we focus on? And as I thought about that, there's many different pieces of this text that I really find compelling, including uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, when you get back into the Greek language, that word baptize there simply means immerse or to surround in or to bathe in something. It can be water, often is water, obviously, but it simply just means to immerse. And so as we're calling out disciples for those who will follow Jesus, the call of the Ecclesia is simply to immerse them into God. Father, Son, and Spirit. Immerse them, surround them, bathe them in God. That would be an interesting sermon, I think. Uh, we could talk a little bit about how all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth and how important that was for them to hear. Because in that culture, the Caesars, the ruling people, the Julius Caesars, Octavius, Tiberius, all these Caesars, they called themselves in that culture the son of God because the Caesars were considered to be divine. So Octavius, the son of Julius, called himself, and you see it all throughout Roman literature and poetry and archaeological inscriptions, how he is the son of God, and he will usher in peace and prosperity and a kingdom that will never end. And this is all attributed, attributed to Octavius and then Tiberius. And Jesus says, no, I'm the son of God. All authority is given to me. So they would have heard that in that way then. We could have focused a bit on they all worshipped, but some doubted, which... <laughs> resonates a bit in my own journey. And we even talked about it in prayer time beforehand, how common it is that we're so utterly convinced that this, this is all true, and yet there's one little piece that's always like, mm, I don't know. And just to walk through some of that and how natural that is and that that was true of the people on the side of the hill. That, and those would have all been interesting, but the one that I picked this morning, primarily because I think it'll help, I hope, cut through some of the tension and the complexities of this idea of all these different streams of discipleship and what this commission means is that last phrase of Jesus. And surely, or lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. But I recognize even as I say that, on first blush, to me anyway, it felt a bit anticlimactic. <laughs> the other one sounded pretty interesting. And now what are you going to do with this one in the sermon this morning? I mean, give me a break. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to talk about discipleship. Is this journey of life on the narrow way and it's difficult and fraught with peril and we have a hard time, but just know that Jesus is always with you. And so I'm going to give you this big spiritual and psychological pep talk about stand strong and walk it out and Jesus is there. And then we'll get done. And at the end, Joel will come up and we'll sing, what a friend we have in Jesus and off we'll go. 
<laughs> Joel's ready. I told him, be ready, just in case we need to stop and just roll with it. We could do that. But then I realized again, that's how I hear that phrase. Low I'm with you always. How did they hear it? How would they have heard that phrase? And if we can figure that out, is there anything that might be helpful for us? I believe it's a critical question because I do believe that when properly understood, these final words of Jesus about being with us are fundamental to whatever notion we have of what the discipleship journey holds and what it means to call people into the life of God as his ecclesia, to make disciples. Let me explain why I say that. And I keep just doing the setting of life stuff, but the people on the side of the hill when Jesus is saying these words would have seen him likely in ways, quite frankly, that I don't often see him. When I think of Jesus, I think of Jesus as son of God or as king or as ruler or the one through whom the universe was made. And all of those things are true about Jesus. But the people on the side of the hill would have seen him maybe in a way with which I am unfamiliar. And the way they would have seen Jesus back then is as a great teacher of the law. In fact, they would have seen him as a rabbi. What we see in the text is that the most common title for Jesus used well over 20 times in the text is teacher master, which is translated as rabbi uh, from the Greek language. They saw him as a rabbi. I'm going to get into this more about why this is meaningful. But Jesus as a rabbi showed that he was because he he debated the Torah and the law of God with other rabbis of that time. We see that through the story quite often. We see Jesus, rabbis were expected to provide some sort of power that would give credibility to their ministry. And people are always confused by Jesus because he didn't have all of the right pedigree and background. They're like, this dude's a carpenter, and yet look at the words of power that he speaks. And so in that, that was indicative of whether or not the rabbi was credible. And of course, then, like all other rabbis in that culture, Jesus called out disciples or took on disciples. And there were many in that culture, the rabbis Hillel and Shammai and many others had their disciples. And Jesus said 12, chose 12 even just symbolically to, to say, I'm starting the new people of God here. Okay? These are the new tribes. The tribes hadn't been together since the fall of, of Samaria in like 800 or 786 and, or 722. And they hadn't been all together. And Jesus says, I'm starting over at the 12. And they're, they're his disciples to follow the rabbi. And now this is where it gets interesting for me, is that Jesus' final words of being with us would have landed on the people on the hillside in a certain way. And in particular, the, the expectation, if you were to be a disciple of a rabbi, there was one expectation of you. And this was it. The only expectation, should, you, should the rabbi call you in or you choose to follow, or however it worked that you got there, was that you were simply expected to be with the rabbi. That was your life. That was what you did. You left it all and you followed the rabbi and you, you, you took on who, uh, the, the, the way of the rabbi and how he was in life is how then you would be in life. You were expected just simply to be with him. Dallas Willard, who is a modern and well-known theologian philosopher, says this about this being with dimension of Jesus in that day. The basic nature of the rabbi-disciple relationship was retained by Jesus and his disciples. That relationship was very simple in description. His disciples were with him, learning to be like him. With him meant in that day that they were literally where he was 
and were progressively engaged in what he was doing. So as he moved around from Jewish villages and towns, and especially around Jerusalem, his main disciples were with him in all of this. And during his post-resurrection presence with them, when he trained them how he would be with them after his ascension without visible presence, he then gave them the instruction to make disciples of all nations. As you start putting this all together now, why did Jesus need to say these words on the side of the hill, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age? Well, it wasn't a spiritual pep talk. He was about ready to leave. And if the expectation when he says, go and make disciples, I want disciples of me throughout Judea and Samaria and even into the end of the age, that would have been confusing for the people on the side of the hill because, hey, you're leaving. How am I going to be with you, which is the expectation of any disciple? How will I be with you? And Jesus had given the disciples some instructions and said, guess what? I am going to leave for a time before he didn't say 40 days, but 40 days later, what happens? They're hanging out in the upper room, wondering what in the world to do. Jesus has disappeared. He says to be with them. I don't get it. I don't understand. And suddenly the sound like a rushing of wind fills everything and bang, Jesus sends his spirit. And in that time, Peter finally like gets it. You know, he's like, oh, I think I understand all of this. And he stands up and he gives this great sermon in Acts 2 and lays out the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the spirit has broken from the temple and into the lives of people so that we're now the temples of the Holy Spirit. And in that, Jesus says, this is how I'm going to be with you. I will be with you even until the end of the age. So be my disciples. I'm here and I'm with you. And the expectation is of any discipleship is that we're with him. Discipleship is not first and foremost about a theological understanding of things. Discipleship is first and foremost not about a series of behaviors or about subscribing to a series of written or unwritten rules of a given Christian context. Discipleship at its core, at least how the people on the hillside would have heard it 2,000 years ago, was simply this, spend time with the rabbi. Let him govern your life. And there is more to it. When I even say those words, let him govern their life, there was an expectation among the people there that as they spent time with the rabbi, certain things would happen. Dallas Willard says this. They, the disciples in Jesus' age, were simply with their rabbi, serving him, and here's the key part, becoming like him in thought and in character and in actions. Being with the rabbi, serving him and becoming like him in thought and character and actions. The idea being is that the way the rabbi saw the world, the lens through which in our case Jesus saw the world, becomes the lens through which we see the world. The character that Jesus had and manifested around him in his capacities and abilities becomes the character that we have in our capacities and abilities as we spend time with the risen rabbi. I don't know what your journey has been like, but so much of my journey has been I understand the truth and I know that I need to kind of go do it and stuff like that. But if I'm honest with myself, the very lens through which I view the world, the very character that I have inside doesn't always match up with the activities that I know I'm supposed to do. And yet what I found also in my journey is I simply spent time with the risen rabbi in a variety of ways that the way I begin to view life begins to be altered. And the character that I have begins to be changed and transformed in that. 
And my Christian journey isn't any longer one of a fragmented life where I go do my church stuff separate from my athletics or work or social media or friends or family or travel or money. The whole thing begins to be governed by the way the rabbi would see it. And Jesus said, guess what? I'm with you for that very purpose. The entire New Testament is rife with these kinds of ideas and thoughts. The reason why Paul so often has to fire out all these letters to these different churches is he goes and he establishes these churches and they're following the rabbi and then they all start getting all cluttered up and mixed up and confused. And so Paul says, no, let's, we got to get this straight again. Philippians 2, here's the thing. Let your attitude be that of the very same as Christ Jesus, who, though he was in very nature God, didn't consider that equality something to be hung on to, but he let it all go and he took on the form of a servant. And so don't just act in a humble way. Could, 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 the, could you have the same attitude even as you spend time with your rabbi? That humility just pervades who you are. You don't have to think about it. I use this example <laughs> too. Um, I like chocolate cake. Right? I mean, it's, and, and that's the right thing to like, right? I mean, because chocolate cake is just intrinsically good. I mean, it's part, it's part of just universal truth. It's one of the truths that I stand on in life, um, that chocolate cake is good. If you want to debate that, you're wrong. You're actually backslidden. Um, and um, so chocolate cake is truly good. And because that's good, and because I see, I mean, the very lens through which I see the world, when a piece of chocolate cake is in front of me on the table, I don't look at that and say, well, I know that that's intrinsically good, and I know I'm supposed to eat it, but I can't really stand it, and I'll go ahead and I'll just, you know, I'll eat it and stuff like that. No, my, the very lens through which I view the world is consistent with the fact that chocolate cake is good. And so when I see chocolate cake, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to wonder about it. I don't have to apply the truth or anything. I just go eat it. Because it's part of who I am. Let your attitude be the same as that as Christ Jesus. The very way in which you see the world is through humility. Now I get it. We have to practice that sort of stuff. But the more that we practice and the more we spend time with our risen rabbi, who by his transforming spirit sets us free from the laws of sin and death in our life, we begin to take on the very character and thought life of the rabbi. And we see the world through the lens of humility. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled faces, we're now being transformed into the image of the Son with ever-increasing glory. Or, 1 John 2, 6, if you say you live in God, just live like Jesus did. Let that be part of your character. 2 Peter 3, 18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, learn to speak the truth in love, growing in every way, more and more like Christ, more and more like the risen rabbi. You're his disciple. Be with him. See the world the way that he sees it. Take on his character. Good news is you get to do it with grace. <laughs> There's now no condemnation for those who are with the risen rabbi. For the, the law of the spirit of life sets us free. And I know that I've got disorder inside of me. I get that. And as I spend time with the rabbi, the law of the spirit of life, because there is no condemnation to come into the light, that which is in the darkness can be transformed. And I begin to take his character. And so the way Jesus sees this world increasingly, hopefully, becomes the lens through which I see this world. Or you. And we, as we abide in the Spirit, you know, little fruits start to come. <laughs> Stuff like, oh, well, love. And joy. And peace. Oh, and I become a person of patience. I actually see the world in a patient way. That would be weird. <laughs> Goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and kindness and self-control. Just become the way that I operate. Not saying I'm there, but that's the invitation. 
We may even, we may even learn to authentically bless those who curse or pray for those who persecute or turn the other cheek or give away freely, cry for those in pain, turn the tables of disordered power, love the downtrodden, visit the prisoners, care for orphans and widows, learn to trust that each day the manna will yet again come, stand as people of light in the midst of darkness, and become people of deep truth, where when we say yes, it means yes. And when we say no, it means no. And there's no oath required. As we continue to follow our risen rabbi, I'm compelled by this idea, it says in the Gospel of John, that he begins to not any longer call a slave, but he calls his friend. Because my friends know what my father's up to. And as we journey it out with the risen rabbi, he begins to show us the deeper things of the kingdom, the really, really crazy stuff. Like, here's your enemy, guess what? Love him. Love him. All right? And, and should you ever have to walk out the journey where somebody puts a crown of thorns on your head, and whips your back 39 times and mocks and beats and ridicules and spits in you and gambles over your clothes and pierces your hands and your feet with nails and nails you to a cross and jams a spear in your side. Should that ever even happen? And you look over the people doing that. It's very possible this crazy thing might come out of your lips like, guess what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. One of the craziest disciples of Jesus was Stephen, right in the middle of his martyrdom, right? What did he say? Father, don't hold this against them. That was very different than Jewish martyrs of that day. If you get back into the Zitz and Laban, the setting of life for them, back then it chronicles even throughout the books of Maccabees in the text about how Jewish martyrs were expected to hurl curses and epithets and, and just yell at the people as they're dying and basically say, judgment is coming to you and tear them apart. And now you have this Jewish martyr hanging on a cross and the lens through which he sees the whole situation of injustice is he looks over them and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And I've really, I've thought about that as this just indicative of the whole transformation journey of the kind of people we become as we spend time with our risen rabbi. And it occurred to me, and I don't know, I, I can't get into the mind of Jesus back then, but what I don't think was happening when he was hanging on the cross is I don't think he was like, oh, man, these people are driving me nuts. I can't, I can't believe this. Look at the injustice. I mean, my side hurts and I've got, man, this is awful. This whole thing is just a bunch of rubbish. But, you know, I am the divine son of God and I know a bit about the truth and stuff. And so I'll do the right thing here. And so Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There, done, fine. Is that, is that good? I don't think Jesus knew the truth and tried to apply it from a place that wasn't consistent with who he was. I think it was the lens through which he saw the world. I think he looked at these people that he brought into being and he was able to see past the injustice and see past the pain somehow in the very lens, something in him broke and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I wonder what it would be like to have that lens for life, the way that I experience life. And yet the risen rabbi stands in the hillside and says, guess what? <laughs> I'm with you. Come spend time with me. I'll teach you. I'll show you. You can have that lens too. John Ortberg is one of my favorite pastors in today's culture. I just love the way he puts things. And people often ask John Ortberg, or I heard him say in a sermon, you know, John, how's your walk? <laughs> how's your walk, John? You know, and I hear that and I think, well, I think I'm a little backslidden. You know, I didn't do my pool of liquid thing this morning and, you know, whatever else it is. And, and, uh, and John said, you know what I ask myself when I ask about how my walk is? Um, I ask, how's my love? 
Am I seeing the world through the eyes of love again today and all that that represents because God is love. So if I'm not in some way, and I don't mean permission, I don't mean everything's fine, I just mean somehow in the mysteries that is the kingdom of God and the love that's present, is that how I'm seeing the world? So as I pull all of this back together then, with that being said, and this idea that at least the people on the side of the hill, the way that they would have heard these words of Jesus, would have been, come and spend time with me, and the way you think, and your character, and your abilities will all be transformed to be like mine. I mean, Jesus says this crazy stuff in the Gospel of John when he says, guess what? You follow me, you will be able to do everything that I do, and yea, even greater things. (laughs) Really? Really? Yeah, because what if there's thousands of people becoming more and more like Christ in character, attitude, thoughts, and abilities. What if they were inhabiting this world? Imitating Christ, becoming like him, what would that world look like in calling other people into truth? So I pull all this together, and I, and I think about all these different streams that I mentioned at the, on the front end. And I think about you know, using communion as an example of a discipleship behavior. And I know for me in my own journey of communion, it's been at many times and points in my life a rote exercise. You know, something that I just do. Come on, that's where, oh, that's right, it's Communion Sunday. Okay, and the stuff's up front again. And, and I mostly just hope to not drop the grape juice container on the way by, right? I mean, isn't that, I had a successful communion because that thing made it through again. And maybe I even got the one in the center because it's holier. Than, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> no, the thoughts have actually, and my wife can attest, they've gone through my mind, right? Yeah, it's horrible. And I just hope it's not the little biscuits and then it's a big loaf. Anyway, it's been that in my journey. But it's also been something very different where it's been profound time with the risen rabbi. You see, when Jesus said, do these things in remembrance of me, that concept of remembrance in the Jewish faith was not to just remember back something that happened in the past. It literally meant to call back into present the reality and the power and the events of the past so that they are as effective today as they were back then. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Call me back into your midst. Immerse in, bathe in, surround in me in these moments. Let my power inhabit you. The early Christians got that. <laughs> if you read their writings, there many of them were accused as being cannibals by the broader culture because they were eating the flesh of you. Now, I don't know about all of that, but there was a very robust sense of the presence of Jesus there. It's something that my family and I try to practice each week, just in the privacy of our living room, pulling out the elements. And the reconciliation power among the family of having Jesus in our midst in those moments is profound for our journey. And in ways in which maybe I wasn't seeing like the rabbi in that week, it calls me back into those places. It calls me back into that. And somehow it gets to be a little bit more transformed each week that we do it. I have many brothers and sisters. I myself haven't spoken in tongues. I don't know that I ever will. I don't even know where to begin, right? You know? But I have many brothers and sisters who have. And I trust them with my life. It's been part of their journey. It's always interesting to talk about that particular subject. There's, in most communities, a few closet tongue speakers, right? And so um, I'd like to invite you to a public flogging after service, if, um, if that's you. <laughs> oh, that's terrible, I know. Um, but I trust them with my life. And somewhere in there, the risen rabbi has... I, I get it. I mean, I get that people have been abused by that idea. And I know stories of young men and women, 15, 16 years old, sitting around a campfire and being forced to sit there until they speak in tongues because that is the manifestation that you're actually a disciple. And I get that that's been abused. And yet I also get that some of my dearest friends in life have experienced that. And they have profound character of the rabbi in them, the risen rabbi. So even though it might not be part of my stream, somewhere in there it, it appears <laughs> that Jesus is. 
I know being a part of this kind of tradition where we read the word quite often, that I've read the word in many contexts, and it's been mostly, mostly an exercise of developing my own sense of truth and knowledge, you know, puff up a little bit, you know, I kind of know a little bit more than the rest of you, you know, I, I just, you know, I got my Iwana awards for that, you know, memorizing a few more pieces of scripture. And I also know that the scripture has cut me to the quick. That it is almost as if I'm on that hillside with the risen rabbi right in that moment. And oh man, and you know what that's like when you're broken and, and how that transforms you. See, any of these discipleship streams can be filled with road stuff that doesn't matter and it can be filled with the risen rabbi. Think of how many times I've seen the play, the musical Les Miserables in my life. And every time is the story of Jean Valjean and how, how the grace offered to him moves him to a place of brokenness and change and how that perpetuates blessings throughout future generations for him. How that moves me to tears and how another character, Javert, when, who's so encompassed by the law and the law is what matters. And when grace hits Javert and, he, and he's even offered grace by Jean Valjean in those moments, it is so, he can't even get his brain around it and it is so awful and so terrible because the law is what matters and he has to go kill himself because he can't get his brain around it. And that story to me moves me to tears in that. There's something in there that's transformed my vision. So the point of all of this is that simply being with the rabbi transforms the way that we think. In whatever stream in which we find ourselves, the message is still spend time with the rabbi. And that this entire crazy, wild, joyful painful, confusing, wonderful, sorrowful, and lovely journey that we call life. And all of it, each day on our hillside, the risen rabbi stands. And he says, guess what? I'm with you. Come be with me. Allow me to shape your world. Allow me to show you how I would see this situation. Allow me to shape your character so that possibly you could even forgive in the midst of injustice and love those who hate and pray for those who persecute. I can show you these deep mysteries of the kingdom. It actually, for me, makes evangelism quite easy. I know evangelism is kind of embedded in this text, and I'll close with this thought. Is that, I mean, for many years, evangelism for me was, you know, to try to get the theological truth of things right, you know, and say to people, hey, you know, sort of the invitation into the, into the theological idea was, you know, if you died tonight, where would you go? And, you know, that kind of thing. And try to convince them to, to say yes to Jesus based on some theological idea. I get that. And many people have been brought into kingdom life with that. I also wonder sometimes if they don't end up serving a theological box more than the risen rabbi in that. I also know and have even said myself, you know, hey, and and I've seen it actually more in our culture, less than I've said, but more than I've seen, is that, well, if you follow Jesus, your whole life's going to work out. (laughs) Everything's going to be just great, right? There's going to be nothing. And I think, hmm, you know, the Son of Man says, if you follow me, I promise you, you will not have a place to lay your head. And if you walk this whole thing out, the cross may very well be in front of you. And if you really want to find life, you're going to have to die. And all of these messages that are the confusing conundrums of the kingdom in which life is found as our risen rabbi beckons. So I don't promise people that they're going to have an easy life if they follow the rabbi. So my students come to me at Bethel and they're confused and in turmoil and, you know, academia has deconstructed them or our neighbors, you know, they hear that I teach at Bethel and they're like, oh, yeah, that Jesus stuff, give me a break. And, you know, I'm in Little League and I get that all the time. I hate it when Little League parents ask me what I do. I'm like, mm-hmm. 
you know. What I've started doing, right or wrong, is just saying, you know what? Why don't you just go try to talk to Jesus? Let's give it a shot. See what might happen. You may sound kind of silly, you know, speaking into the atmosphere around us, but, but what, what if it's real? What if the rabbi really is risen? What if he really is present? What might happen when you begin to speak with him? I talked to the woman after service in the first service, and she said, my son is uh, wrestling with atheism right now. And she said, yeah, no, just then, okay, wrestle with it. And in that, as you read about atheism, talk to Jesus at the same time and see what might happen. Talk to some friends who they are missionaries in a Muslim culture. And that's what they do. <laughs> they don't try to convince them the truth of Christianity versus Islam. And the stories that they come from that are just amazing. In this particular strain of, strain of Islam, it's more of a mystical version of it. And they're used to Muhammad or the angels showing up in dreams. That's how they perceive of their faith. And they come with story upon story upon story that shakes my box, quite frankly, of how when they began to speak to Jesus, guess who appeared to them in dreams? I don't know how to understand that. That is not part of my journey. But I wonder what it would be like if we trusted people to the risen rabbi on the side of the hill. I said, why don't you go talk to him? And then let's talk to him together and wonder together what he might say. And in that, begin to have our character and our life and our thought transformed. And we will be disciples. We will be followers of him. I'm going to close in prayer and invite the worship team to come forward and then offer a benediction uh, for you this morning as well. So let's pray. God, I am grateful for your bigness and Jesus that you have risen. And I ask that in the ways that you did 2,000 years ago that are still applicable today, that your spirit would come rushing out and that you would be with us and that we could learn to have our minds and our hearts and our character attuned to you to become people of love and peace and joy and patience and goodness and kindness. We desire to follow you. Teach us how. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.